Well, for the sermon today, I want to talk about, you see the title of the sermon there, The Meaning of Life Question. I'm taking this from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 8. In my hand here is a book that was written by a British journalist by the name of John Jonathan Gabby. Gabby wrote this it was back in 1995. He was in his 30s and he had reached a point in his life professionally and personally where he had basically hit rock bottom. He decided that he wanted to write a book about the meaning of life, and he would donate all of the proceeds of the book to the British Red Cross. So what he did is he sent out letters to people over all walks of society and said, basically, um, talk to me about the meaning of life. He wrote to barbers, taxicab drivers, lords in parliament, Emmy award-winning actors, Comedians, world leaders. He wrote to Mother Teresa, and he wrote to homeless people on the street. Everybody, and he said, I'm at rock bottom. Talk to me about the meaning of life. That's a big question. (laughs) It's the burning question. And immediately when you start in Gabby's book, you, you discover how few people have really thought deeply and intelligently about that question. Even very sophisticated and successful people, verse, or page 16 here, Lord Beloff, one of the lords in the British Parliament, he says, he's 82 years old, he says, I find it odd as an octogenarian to be faced with a problem I have never really considered, never really considered before. I would not even attempt to tackle it now were it not that I don't like refusing doing anything to help out the Red Cross. The reason for not having asked myself this question is like many people, I have taken the fact of being on this earth for granted and used my energies either to cope with current problems of daily life like earning a living for oneself and one's family or finding ways of filling up the time with rewarding activities to help through the, the daily through the daily grind and basically you have a lord in parliament saying I've been so busy for the last 80 years of my life that I haven't, I haven't had time to ask the question Quite a few others, probably the dominant answer in this book is from people who say, yes, I have thought about the question, and what I've discovered is there is no meaning to life. A famous British actor, Sir Michael Horden, the last published words of his before he died, he writes, Dear Mr. Gabby, I'm sorry, but I see at the end of my life no meaning at all. Some suggest that it's not even a question that we as human beings should be asking. A professor of psychology writes, science is the source of our most reliable answers, but it is only a response to how questions. It is silent when confronted with why questions. The question about the meaning of life is a why question, 
And in the nature of things, it can have no definitive answer because it is not a scientific question. Another scientist by the name of Albert Einstein said, the man who regards his life and the life of his fellow creatures as meaningless is not merely an unhappy person, but is a person who is hardly fit for life. Not all the scientists agree. So some people said we shouldn't even be asking ourselves the question. Some people said there's no meaning to life. Others ended up providing uh, some less than satisfactory answers. So Arthur C. Clarke, another author and scientist, I am happy, therefore, to have solved one of the great problems which philosophers and theologians have been haggling about for thousands of years. This is the answer. The purpose of human life is information processing. (laughs) In typical British uh, way of putting things, you may perhaps feel that, that that is a rather dusty answer and that not even the most inspired preacher could found a religion on the slogan that the purpose of life is information processing. Indeed, you might even ask me the question back, what is the purpose of information processing? Ah, well, I am very glad you asked me that. And that's where his letter ends. (laughs) (laughs) Then uh, there are those who attempt to provide a profound answer. So John Lennon, he says, life is what happens to you while you're busy making other plans which is a very profound statement. The author of the Fred Flintstone comic strip says, the meaning of life is to treat people right and love your family. If you do that, you'll have a yabba-dabba do time. (laughs) And then there were some uh, wistful, very wistful responses. So an actress wrote back, so the meaning of life, she said, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. I'm a Christian pastor. It's Easter Sunday. Of course, I'm going to tell you that it isn't a question that you should be asking, and it is a question that has an an answer to it. Uh, They're right to a certain extent. It It is not a how question, so it can't be answered by science. It is a why question, and therefore it can be answered by the creator of scientists. It's the creator who is able to tell you the purpose for which something has been made. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 8, if you take your bulletins. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Otherwise, if you don't, you have believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter 
and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have, and he uses the euphemistic phrase for death, though some of them have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, the Lord's brother, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me. That's a lot of people, a lot of eyewitnesses that the, the Bible, Paul, Christianity claims, eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So he, on Easter morning, we already read a little bit about how there were women there. And then Peter and John were the first to run to the tomb and find it empty. The first people, um, the first men that he appeared to happened to be a couple of disciples who were walking along a road outside of Jerusalem to a place called Emmaus. Jesus appeared then. Then he appeared to the 11 apostles in the upper room. Sometime later, Jesus appeared to his brother James. Now, James and actually all of Jesus' immediate family, none of them believed in him, but he appeared to James. And then he appeared to Paul. And then he appeared to up to 500 eyewitnesses. Now, when you hear all of that, uh, what do you think about all of those people who are, are claimed to have, have seen him? If you're anything like me, you're very skeptical. <laughs> I think the older that we get, the, the less confidence we have in people's accounts of things. It's just almost like the older you get, the less you trust people and what people have to say. These people could, definitely could have lied about their having seen Jesus Christ. But the other thing that you have to admit is if they lied, they, they took that story with them to the grave. Like a whole lot of the people who claimed to see and follow Jesus ended up dying for by virtue of the fact that they claimed to follow him. They were willing to give their lives for this story. So does that make it true? No. But does that give it a, a, a greater level of, of plausibility? Yeah. Paul writes this about 20 years after Jesus' resurrection. It's a letter that would have been read in public because it was a public document. You know, it was something that he felt confident enough that it, it would stand up under scrutiny. And you notice there's three in the last four verses of this passage, he repeats the same phrase again and again. In verse 5, 6, 7, and 8, he says, and he appeared. Do you see that? And he appeared to, and then he, and he appeared to, and he appeared to. I may be reading something into the passage here that is not necessarily there, but it struck me that Paul does not say and he was seen by. Like people see things. People see a lot of things. <laughs> people see Elvis, right? People see UFOs. And they, but that's not where, where Paul is laying the, uh, the emphasis. The emphasis is not on, you know, things that they see. It's on the initiative that Jesus Christ took to reveal himself, to appear to people in some of the least expected places and in some of the 
most skeptical, uh, skeptical cases. So like Jesus ends up, if you don't know the story, he ends up uh, appearing to Thomas. Thomas says, look, I'm not going to believe this. Unless I am able to take my finger and to insert it into the wounds of Jesus, I'm not going to believe. And Jesus appears to him. And he appears to his brother James, who, who did not believe in him as the Messiah. He appeared to Paul, who was a persecutor of the church. I guess the point I'm trying to make is you and I, reasonably, we have a worldview that, that filters out this thing called resurrection. And we say that just can't possibly happen, like in a scientific No, that, that doesn't happen. But we assume that they had a worldview that was really gullible. Like, oh yeah, of course, he rose. <laughs> yeah, that happens all the time. And no. They were they they were every bit as skeptical as you and me. The, the dominant tone of all of the resurrection of accounts is twofold. It's surprise and doubt. Surprise and skepticism. They weren't expecting this. In the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28, Jesus appears to his disciples in Galilee. And it says, quote, uh, and, and many of them believed, but some of them doubted. <laughs> I get, I'm trying to make the point that they were, they were just like us. Deeply skeptical. They, this stuff doesn't happen. Yes, some of these people could have, have lied. But it would have been a really strange way to fabricate a story. We already talked about, Shelton said, that the, you know, the very first witnesses of the resurrection were the women. Now, if you were going to fabricate, if you were going to fabricate a new world religion and base the, uh, why would you do it with, with women, making women the last people who stood by Jesus at the cross and the first people to be his eyewitnesses? That's just a very strange way to fabricate in a, in a patriarchal society. It, it would be like us, if you imagine walking into a Taliban-controlled village in Afghanistan, and, and me standing up and saying, did you know that, that Muhammad's ascension into heaven was testified to by only a couple of ladies? Like, how is that going to play there? <laughs> That's not going to go over... Those, these are the same people who beat women for trying to get an education and learn to read. If you're going to fabricate a story, this is not a very plausible way of, of doing so. So every Easter Sunday, in every Easter Sunday sermon, when I look back over the last oh, 13 years, I always end up giving historical proofs for the resurrection of Jesus, like four or five different reasons to say that it's historically reliable and believable. I don't want to do that this morning. I really want to focus on the meaning of life question. But before I do, I consider this. Why aren't you a Christian? Like, why aren't, really, why aren't you a Christian? I think most people base their decision whether or not to follow Christ on reasons entirely removed from this event. Like, if you were really to probe why he over here is not a Christian. The reason he's not a Christian is because uh, he has a domineering Christian mother-in-law who has been very judgmental and has, has hurt his feelings or he's 
he's been around Christians. She's been around Christians who have hurt, hurt him. Um, they're not Christians because they don't like Christians' politics. And that's fine, but don't you realize that none of that has anything to do with whether or not Jesus Christ is risen from the dead? And what, what we would want you to is base your decision on the, the merits, uh, the historical merits of this event. Either it happened or it didn't happen. And, and your mother-in-law or father-in-law has nothing to do with it. But focus that as your place of inquiry. So that's all I really want to say there about the historical question. Let's talk about the meaning of life. What is, if we were to pull most people, what would they, on the street today, what would they say is the meaning of life? I think the, the dominant answer we would get the, is, um, is that you are to create your own meaning in life. Isn't that what people say today? Your meaning, it's up to you. It's totally up to you. Normally, in our circles, it takes on a pretty noble direction. At least that's what people will say when they're being interviewed. You know, I'm going to commit my life to finding a cure for cancer. And that's what's going to provide meaning in my life. It's some kind of altruistic, I'm going to try to make the world a better place. It's not something that's determined to, uh, for me by God or some deity. It's my personal decision, and, and because I do that, that's what gives my life meaning. And when you hear that answer, let's admit that at first, it sounds very reasonable, doesn't it? Sounds nice. There are at least two, as I see it, two real problems with that answer, if you want to explore with me. Number one, if the meaning of life is determined entirely subjectively you know, by you, then it follows that anything a person wants, anything can become their meaning in life. If it's entirely subjective, then it all depends on personal preferences and desires. Sitting around uh, all day eating donuts and playing video games could just as well be the meaning of your life as would be of finding a cure for an infectious disease. If it's all subjective, then a suicidal person is entitled to make the meaning of, the, of life the destruction of their life. That's weird to think about. Or even worse still, a homicidal person is able to make the meaning of life the destruction of other lives. If it's entirely subjective, who is to say one meaning is better than the other. And the second problem that I see with the answer is, and you can call it the bootstraps problem. Just as it is impossible for us to pull ourselves off the floor uh, with our own bootstraps, so I think it is, it's impossible for you to confer meaning on your own life if your life lacks objective meaning to begin with. That sounds pretty philosophical, but if you and I, if all we are are just basically the products of biological random chance, like our numbers came up in the primordial uh, roulette wheel, <laughs> we just, if that's all that we are, it's just sophisticated biological viruses, 
If your life has no objective meaning, how can any of your choices be meaningful or create meaning? It would be like you being at the bottom of the ocean and trying to climb out of the bottom of the ocean by constructing a ladder of water. It doesn't work. Okay, Rabbi Zacharias is one of my favorite Christian speakers, and I I was talking to somebody after the first service, and he said, yeah, I love Ravi. He goes around to different... Uh, speaking venues around college campuses primarily, and he talks about the philosophical implications of Christianity, the historical implications of Christianity. He was recently in Newtown, Connecticut. I mean, is anybody here unaware of of the words Newtown, Connecticut? Like, four, three years ago, never heard of it before, Right? I mean, that's the place that will forever live in our minds in the greatest of infamy. And what Ravi Zacharias said, what was it, the, the 20 first graders, they died in less than five minutes, just the, the cold, heartless ambivalence of their killer, if you read the reports. And what Ravi asks is, did he get away with murder? Did their murderer escape the consequences of the pain that he inflicted on, that, on the, those families in that community? Is that it? Did he get away with murder? And the answer is absolutely he got away with murder. If atheism and naturalism are true, then he gets away with all of it. Because there's no difference between what awaits one person or another person at the end of their lives. There's no objective value or meaning We're just this long cycle of biological organisms preying on each other. It's been going on for millennia now. Lions eat baby wildebeest. And human beings with guns No. Life is meaningful. And it's not because we come up with our own meaning. Now that's a story or that's a theme that comes up often in Disney movies. You know, we every Disney movie has this sort of message that you know, uh, find your dreams, follow your dreams, be who you want to be. Judy Andrews in Sound of Music, she says, "What? Climb every mountain, ford every stream, follow every rainbow till you find your dreams." And and these songs are symptomatic of supposedly empowering freedom that comes when your identity is something that is entirely constructed by you. <laughs> but is it really that, that empowering and freeing? Because if that's the case, your whole existence depends on you. Your value depends on your achievement. You are meaningful only to the degree that you are able to uh, fulfill your dreams <laughs> and find Prince Charming and have the, the success as a what as an NBA basketball player that you knew you were going to be when you're in the third grade and in elementary school at career day like that's a heavy burden your whole existence is predicated on your ability to achieve no life is not meaningful because we come up with our own meaning a far better answer and you you know this is the answer that I'm going to give The meaning of life is for you to know your creator. It's your creator who's able to tell you what 
is the purpose for which something is made. And not only to know your creator, but to fall in love with your creator. And your creator turns out to be the recreator. And so not only does he want you to know him, but he wants you to go back into the world to be agents of his new creation into what is admittedly a a dying world. Okay, so uh, based on my reading, there are a hundred trillion cells in the human body. And when the body dies, forgive me if I've messed this up scientifically, but (laughs) when the body dies, I think all hundred trillion cells die. What happens on Easter, we maintain, is that God the Father reinfused life into a hundred trillion dead cells, and that Jesus' bodily resurrection on this day, 1,982 years ago, was just the start of what he plans to do. Jesus' body is the first bit of the material order that comes back to life. And as such, it is a pledge for what he is intending to do with all of life. It's it's this marvelous demonstration of his desire to reinfuse life into this place. A marvelous demonstration of, of his love. As trite as the phrase may sound, that God loves the world um, and God loves you, nothing could be more true. God loves you. And I know that is a difficult message for for a lot of people to hear because you look around your life like, oh, God doesn't love me. I don't see any evidence of God's love in my life. Prove it. Prove that God, God loves me. Okay, I will. God loves you so much that he gave his one and only son for you. Now, you may, not, you may have heard that a hundred times before, but do you realize how profound that is? If you are a parent, you understand instinctively what type of love that requires to sacrifice your son or daughter for somebody else. I mean, even if you're not a parent, you understand what a high, what, what an incredible amount of love it must take to sacrifice your own child. I mean, us parents, the truth is we couldn't do it. We, we would not do it for you. I might willingly give my life, I might willingly die for you, but I'm not going to make my, I'm not going to sacrifice my child for you. And the Bible asserts that God gave his son for you. That's the extent of God's love for you. St. Augustine, who I mentioned at the baptism, he famously said that God loves each one of us as if there's only one of us to love. It's a beautiful expression. A deeply personal love that God has for us. The other important aspect of the Christian message is it's surprising that God would love us like this because there's a lot in us, not worthy of love. (laughs) Like when God, the creator, looks at his world, he does not look at it through rose-tinted glasses. He sees, he sees how rebellious this world is. He sees how, so I calculated about, there's about like 60 armed conflicts going on 
in the world right now, if you do the math, we have killed about 50 million people since World War II. Like the only biological species that preys upon its own members like that are rats. Rats do that to each other. And so do humans. It is extraordinary that God should set his love on us when that is how we behave. Writes Rico Tice, the author of Christianity Explored. Uh, he, he came, so he's a British pastor, and he came up with this kind of investigating, it, this program with DVDs and a book where people who are interested in Christianity can exp, uh, investigate. Christianity Explored, I've drawn heavily on his, his stuff this morning. He says, it's extraordinary that God should love, that he should set his love on us when this is when, how we behave. When like 95% of us say, I believe in God, and yet uh, almost 100% of us don't even bother to find out what God's standards are for the way that life should be lived. You go, to the, go over to Boise State, like how many Boise State students, for instance, could even give you three of the Ten Commandments? I bet you they couldn't tell you five. Like 23-year-olds, 30-year-olds, 40-year-olds, we're so divorced from any knowledge or even any desire to know what are God's standards for human life. Here's a, a list that can be found in the New Testament writings of Paul. I want you to ask yourself the question, how do you score out of 10 on this list? This is what we're guilty of, he says. Sexual immorality, impurity, Hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of anger, selfish ambition, factions, envy, drunkenness. Wow. (laughs) Ouch. Which leads me back to page 13 of Jonathan Gabby's book. Dear Sir, Thank you for your letter of May the 7th, 1994, in which you invite the commissioner of, actually the superintendent of the Metropolitan Police of London to comment upon the meaning of life. Regrettably, I am afraid that the sheer number of requests for his views means that he is unable to provide to you a contribution. Nevertheless, he asks me to wish you all success in your venture. On a personal note, as his private secretary, I can quite understand your search for wisdom and answers, particularly when personal circumstances do not go the way we wish they would. I am clear that the meaning of life can only be properly understood in the context of our relationship with God. I commend to you St. John's Gospel. I have always found the words of John's Gospel and Psalm 139 help focus the mind. It just so happens that right now I'm in a series preaching through John's Gospel. And do you know how John's Gospel ends? The very last words of John's Gospel. John says, I, Jesus did many other miraculous signs which have not been written in this book, but these things that I have written down are so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and so that by believing you might have life in his name. That is why you are here, to know your creator and to experience life in his name. Okay, I'm going to close with this. 
Um, so during the, the decades right before Jesus' birth and, and, all of, and then the decades after, Jesus was not the first Jewish messianic movement. There were dozens of them. There would be some guy who stands up and says, I'm the Messiah, and I'm going to liberate you from Rome. And inevitably, like in every one of those instances, what happens? They get executed. And all of their followers end up going home and um, crying a little bit, and and life goes on. (laughs) Uh, The Romans execute it. There's only one Jewish messianic movement in which the the, the leader not only dies, but the, the, the movement explodes through the rest of the empire. In 300 years, the, the, it, it expanded to the entirety of the Roman Empire. If you imagine this bulletin is the, the world t- today, and as a, as a great final hurrah in my sermon, uh, I'm, I wish I had a lighter. If I were to light this bulletin on fire... <laughs> That little spark, which would start right here on the edge of the paper, it would be a small uh, spark, but it would start to burn. And if I made sure that the fans fans didn't blow it out and watch the wind and all and all of that, it would eventually spread and consume this entire bulletin. That's what we're saying has happened. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is the spark that has already begun to spread um, for 2,000 years and it has spread into our lives, real Christian lives, who then go back into the world and bring the Creator's life to a dying world. It was Mark Twain who said that the two most important days in your life are the day that you are born and the day you figure out why. Could, it, could today be that day for you? Uh, all of us here Christians would admit that Christianity is not easy. There are many times when it's, it's a slog. <laughs> praying, faithfully praying for other people is one of the biggest slogs. We would never say that it was easy, but I can guarantee you this. Ever since I became a Christian, there has not been a single day of my life when I didn't know what I was here for. There's not been a single moment in my life where I didn't know why I, why I need to get out of bed today. Is that what you can say about yourself? You were made to know your creator, to love your creator, to experience your creator's life and to spread it out into the rest of this world. And it's all because... Christ is risen. Amen.